Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is my dear friend, Father Connor. It is lovely to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. At last, I've listened to nearly all the episodes, loved every single one of them, and I'm really a fan of what you're doing. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, you've been a real champion of it, and I'm really grateful for that. And of course, you've been running countless things in Dublin and and further afield in Ireland. Um, I know you best through the C.S. Lewis book club that you've been running for, is it two years now? Yep, nearly two years, about a year and a half. Well, it's it's been one of my highlight social occasions of, of my time here in Dublin. So it's been great getting to know you. But unfortunately, I haven't actually convinced you to come on and do a C.S. Lewis episode yet. Yeah, <laughs> it's not really expert enough to do something like that, I think. I can't imagine that's true, but I, I definitely have to have Phoebe involved in that one. I think she would come break down the walls if I tried to do a C.S. Lewis episode without her. But that's <laughs> so we'll have to save that for another day. Mm-hmm. But it's wonderful to have you on. We're hoping everything goes all right. We've already had one or two little technical hitches, but Mm -hmm. fingers crossed it's all going well. As I'm recording this, we're about to run our usual U2000 retreat online for the first time because of COVID restrictions. And uh, I think doing any kind of big live event online strikes fear into the heart of anyone ever, but especially, you know, Christian Catholic youth groups, it always seems to come at us hard and fast. So we're praying to, I think, St. Clair and a bunch of other people to try and make sure that it all goes smoothly. And hopefully we'll have lots of people tuning in, but there is there is no way our, our retreat usually gets about a thousand people on the last day. So we just had no hope of trying to run it at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, no. But I think that's in some ways kind of a, a good segue into it because obviously in U2000 retreats, we do a lot of speaking, a lot of talking, and a lot of preaching. And the subject you kind of threw up for us to chat about was about preaching and its place within the faith and why we should care about preaching and the history of it as a, a as a perspective on a Catholic tradition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is something that fascinates me. I'm, I'm a Dominican friar. Um, so I'm a member of the Order of Preachers, so I'm meant to be a professional preacher. It's meant to be my, my, my whole life's work. And yet it's only kind of recently I've started delving into the, the history, of mainly through my interest in medieval Ireland and a few manuscripts. And then I just kind of fell back in love with the whole Dominican thing and the whole movement of the friars. Um, and just I'm really excited about the, the friars as a movement of, of preachers and the relevance for that today. And so it's, it's, it's something that really fascinates me. Yeah, so I'm delighted, delighted to be here doing this. Yeah, and I think preaching is so important because I think it can really make or break whether people attend a, a particular church or even whether they go to Mass at all, if they just feel like the preaching isn't any good. And, you know, as Catholics, I think we always reaffirm that, like, the sacrament is still there, even if you mm-hmm. don't really go for the preaching. But it is good to remember how important that preaching is in in captivating and in transmitting the message. And I think what I kind of get excited about when I think of it in terms of a Christian tradition is how, as someone who loves words and as someone who loves language, that how words and the word is so central to everything to do with our faith in the beginning was the word. Um, And so I think, you know, maybe to set us up, we'll maybe talk a little bit about how Christianity and Catholicism is a uniquely kind of language centered 
faith in that we do understand this concept of of Jesus being the word even mm-hmm. before anything else happens yeah exactly and um in in the middle ages they had this beautiful idea of of creation as um, as a, as as communication creation itself even before salvation history even before Christ and so on creation itself is is a book it's saying something Alain of uh, of Lille he said that every creature is a word a word spoken to us um, and so even just there engaging with the world around us we see it as you know somehow speaking something to us and in the old testament then we see that god speaks through the prophets we kind of we take this for granted as as christians or in the jewish and christian tradition that god speaks um but for for many kind of schools of philosophy like the platonists the idea of god speaking would just be seen as ridiculous and yet the god we worship is a god who speaks speaks through the prophets and then comes among us as one of us and speaks human words jesus was a preacher jesus spoke he tried to to convince he he taught and he he cajoled he harangued sometimes in jesus we see god speaking to us in our human words in uh, in a human mode and that's the kind of the foundation of all the discourse that really happens in the church and um, it's the preaching of jesus that's the foundation for for all of christian preaching after that yeah and i think we can so associate the gospels as like the written word of Christ that we can forget that you know Christ didn't write anything down except when he was writing on the ground <laughs> in, yeah. in that one example like we, we don't have examples of, of Christ writing anything or anything permanent and so it's important to remember how how central that that idea of, of preaching is to the experience of encountering Christ yeah. I think he does it more than he does anything else exactly and it's funny I, I was just at tea this evening with the brothers just remembering something that happened to me a few years ago on O'Connell Street somebody stopped me I was there in my habit, just coming out of confession, saying my rosary, I was like Catholic to the max. And then this evangelical preacher on the street stopped me and was just challenging me on all these extra little things that I was doing. And and the person said, you know, uh, in, our, in our church, um, we're a New Testament church. We have nothing that's not in the New Testament. And um, so none of these extra things. And I said, but hang on, uh, you have the New Testament. And in the New Testament church, they didn't have the New Testament. And that was just like, does not compute, you know, um, just a category error there, you know. So they, uh, but but I think that's an important point that in the earliest church, it's just a church of it's a church of preaching, a church where people mm-hmm. speak about Jesus, the Jesus they knew, the Jesus who is at work in their lives, and and they're simply speaking about him. Yeah, and exactly that. The Great Commission, he sends out the the apostles to go and preach. So it, it doesn't even stop with him, like it gets continued on to them. And then you hear about it in the Acts of the Apostles and how this tradition of preaching kind of goes on. Exactly. In the Acts, you just see so many different kinds of, uh, of preaching in different contexts. You know, Paul is in Greece. He, he preaches by the riverside to these women who are performing their ablutions on, on the Sabbath. Or Peter preaching to all these multitudes in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Or Paul, again, preaching in Athens to a crowd of pagan philosophers and kind of matching their message to the different audiences and, and really acts as a, it's, it's, it's a book of, about, about the preaching of, of the risen Jesus. And so it's, it's a really good book to return to when we think about, about what Christian preaching is. Yeah, absolutely. And I was in preparing for this episode, I was reading an article, which I thought was really interesting, called The, the Word Eclipsed. And it was talking a little bit about how we really struggle to conceptualize what an oral 
society looks like that we're just so used to everything being textual um mm. and that that being in in many ways especially with like the internet now our sort of primary way of communicating through text and so we kind of struggle to really imagine what a world is like and you know to agree we're going to talk about the medieval world and and certainly there is there is literacy involved in in some spaces and often in many places but you're still talking about and until I think even coming up to the, the the more modern era, you're still talking about a society that primarily organized everything through the way that it speaks rather than the way that it, it writes. And I think we really struggle to to conceive of that. Like I know when I was doing my master's and you're talking about Beowulf and there's this real tension with the fact that you're reading the written version of it. And it's the same with like the Greek classics, like, yeah. you know, like the Iliad and the Odyssey, that you're you're reading the written version of it, but that's sort of a shadow of what it actually was because what it was was this performed oral event that we don't have access to anymore because all we have is the text version of it and so we can be a little bit dismissive we don't have a good way of approaching our ideas of what a society looks like kind of through language and through spoken word yeah and i think you can see that in some let's say protestant attitudes to to the scriptures so the sola scriptura idea that only really works within a modern mindset, which prioritizes written texts. You know, right from the beginning, what you have before you have the written scriptures is you have what we might call tradition, which is just people saying, this is the Jesus I know, and this is what he said to me, and this is what he taught, um, and I'm going to pass it on to you. Um, and people were just relying in that interpersonal, what's coming out of your mouth and coming into my ear, that's that's what really counts. And I think I think that's it's, it's, it's important to, to get back to that. Not that in the early church, there was kind of a, a sort of a, a folklore about Jesus. I mean, they were in, very interested in making sure that the correct stories were passed on about Jesus and so on. It wasn't some kind of uncontrolled system of just passing on stories. And they were very interested very early on in writing down these stories and these teachings as well. But just before the written word, you do have uh, you have the spoken word it's prior and it's hard for us to get back to that but i think it's it's worth trying yeah and that there was all of these kind of spaces that people went to to encounter it i mean like if you're thinking of the jewish faith you've got the synagogues or you know you've got paul preaching it in the temples that there was mm. spaces and of course you can kind of correlate things like that to online like you might watch a video now of someone preaching or listen to a podcast but we also certainly in the days of uh, social distancing we don't have that sense of outside of gathering for, for mass or something like that that like there was these places that you would go to hear people talk and of course it wasn't just religious speakers there was just rhetoric and philosophy and debates and these things were events that people came to to kind of experience the sort of thrill of the the, the spoken word and the preached word yeah and we're I think we're in some ways we're so much more visual than oral now you know we just get really really bored very easily just listening to one human voice speaking on one topic we have almost no um no attention span for that kind of uh, <laughs> for that kind of input Unfortunately, and I think it's interesting you're you're speaking there about kind of the more formal context of of preaching or communication, and it's true when we when we when we think about preaching, sometimes we're thinking only of that sort of formal preaching, which is a really really important way of looking at it, but it, it's kind of limiting as well. And I think sometimes it's helpful to think of preaching, Christian preaching, in the really really broad sense as well, of just sharing our faith in Jesus with somebody else with the aim of them coming to the same faith with God's help. And um, mm -hmm. with that very, very broad sense, preaching kind of takes in so much more than one person speaking to a congregation. It includes 
all kinds of other things as well, far more informal, far more inclusive, if you like. So I think it's, it's helpful also to think of preaching in that broad context. As Dominicans, you know, sometimes we kind of limit preaching to that one activity, preaching at Mass or preaching at the Divine Office, but also that there are other Dominicans who would really emphasize that preaching happens everywhere and anywhere and that lay people preach just as much as priests and so on. Um, and I think it's helpful to to keep both of those possibilities in mind. Yeah, and I think that's where you can kind of lose the sense of, of the female place of preaching, that like so much preaching in some ways happens at the home. Like surely the first person you ever listen to about anything is your mum. Yeah, Tom Holland in, in Dominion, um, I don't know if you've read it, but at the end, in the last chapter, he just talks about his aunt. So after after speaking about all of these other like major figures in Christian history, he just comes to his aunt who is not famous or significant from you know an external point of view. And she was just the one who told him about Jesus and told him um, about his death and resurrection and so on. And he said, this really is what's happening. Um, the, the French feminist um, Julie Kristeva, she talks about this a lot, this kind of hidden element of, of feminine work. And I think we can see the same in, in preaching that the history of preaching shows up a lot of men. That's what's shown up in the, in, in the texts and in the records. And yet, if we understand preaching in this broader sense, the vast majority of the work of preaching was actually done by mothers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that sense of what we were talking about earlier about every animal being a word of God, that like every part of your existence in some ways can show evidence of preaching. And there's such a, a kind of rich history to preaching. We get to kind of claim some of the big names in, in writing ever, like Augustine mm. and Ambrose mm. and then on to Thomas Aquinas. It, it's very cool to be part of that history of of preaching the the gospel yeah and sometimes we think of those figures as you know major thinkers or philosophers or writers but as you say just to emphasize that before all else these guys were preachers of the word or communicators of the word and it's, it's really really helpful to think of that especially with the fathers of the church i mean later on somebody like thomas he does preach and it's important but he's a man of the universities the fathers of the church so much of their theology was done from the pulpit and Augustine, especially, if you read his um, his commentary on John, it's his sermons on John. And he's preaching continuously to ordinary people. And occasionally he'll interrupt it and say, by the way, guys, if you want to register to be baptized next uh, Easter, then you have to do it by next Sunday and so on. And all these little notices, you know, turning up in this amazing work of theology. But it was delivered in the pulpit to the ordinary people in his in his flock. I think it's interesting, the relationship between preaching and the liturgy. And it's true that in the uh, in the earliest accounts of, of the Eucharist, preaching is is emphasized. You have readings from the memoirs of the apostles and so on and the gospel. Um, and then you have some kind of a discourse there. And St. Paul, in Acts, St. Paul is described as on the day of the Lord's resurrection, as preaching and preaching for so long on the Sunday. So presumably this is preaching apart from the Eucharist. Presumably the Eucharist had already happened. And now he's just preaching and teaching until midnight. When a guy called Eutychus, which actually means lucky, but he's very unlucky in this case because he falls out of a window, dies, and Paul prays over him and he, he rises from the dead. <laughs> Paul, I mean, we'll see that the later theoreticians of preaching, they say, you know, brevity is important. Paul didn't really get that. He just kept going, kept going. <laughs> and you can imagine people kind of like trying to give him the nod, you know, it's, it's time to wind up and, and Paul just keeps going until somebody dies. <laughs> Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, he said, you know. And and that's yeah. that's that's often quoted um, in the context of uh, of preaching. That's a really important text for the Dominicans. You know, how will people come to have faith if they haven't heard the gospel? And how will they hear the gospel 
if they don't encounter preachers. Um, and so that idea that actually for the, the, the growth and the spread of the faith, preaching is vital. And I think sometimes in in maybe the Christendom mindset or, you know, the idea of just a Christian civilization, we kind of forget the importance of preaching for producing faith. And we kind of just presume sometimes you hear people say things like, well, faith is, is given in baptism. And that that's true. But let's say you're not baptized as a baby. Then faith is normally produced by the testimony and preaching of others coming together with the grace of God. And then with that faith, you come to baptism as an adult. So it's, it's worth bearing that in mind that and Protestants are much stronger on emphasizing the, the role of preaching in the life of the church as kind of constitutive of the church. Whereas we would tend to say, yeah, it's it's, it's the sacraments. Um, but really, we should be saying it's both. I was reading the section in, I think it's, is it the Confessions of St. Augustine, where he gives this long testimony about the importance of rhetoric. And I was thinking of it in the context of how sermons are different to debates or a lot of other types of public speaking, where a lot of the time that the point is to win people onto your side so that you sort of come out the best of it. Mm. Whereas a sermon is about the people listening coming out the best of it. And Uh, obviously there's a sense of you know triumph and I think even St. Augustine calls like really great preaching a triumph that like you've you've Mm. brought people closer to Christ but the the real goal is to have the listeners to win yeah that's a that's a brilliant way of distinguishing between rhetoric and and preaching right there I think the preaching is a service and it should be useful to the people who are listening whereas rhetoric is about is as you say it's about winning them over even by means of lies and when you read Augustine's confessions He's so strong on that. that. That was his profession. And he says, basically, I was a professional liar. I was selling lies and teaching people how to lie and to gain advantage. So that's how he understands rhetoric. And yet he's willing to use the best of that for the sake of preaching the gospel. And it's really interesting when he, because this plays a key role in his conversion. When he is in Milan, he knows that Ambrose is the bishop. And me, simply as a professional rhetorician, he respects Ambrose's rhetorical skills. He's heard about them. And so that's why he goes to the cathedral in Milan to hear Ambrose. He says he had no interest in the content whatsoever. He was only interested in Ambrose's style. He was impressed by that. But then the content began to grab him, which is a really, really interesting thing that it was initially this the rhetorical flair of Ambrose that drew in um, Augustine. But then the, the truth of what Ambrose was saying was kind of, uh, it was like the, the fish hook that caught and I loved what he had to say about an eloquent man must speak so as to teach, to delight and to persuade. And then he says later, to teach is a necessity, to delight is a beauty and to persuade is a triumph. I just I think that is such a an encapsulation of his such clear understanding of the place of, of preaching in the Christian life. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's teaching. And what you want to teach is the truth. That's what you're what you're hoping to communicate. Um, and so that comes first before anything else. You could have the most beautiful lies and that would not be preaching the gospel. It could be really good rhetoric, but it's not good preaching. Mm-hmm. And though I, I, I really like the way he links in delight, the importance of, of delighting your audience. And we'll see that in the Middle Ages, that was so important. Delight, entertainment, levity, all that kind of stuff um, was really emphasized by people who thought about about preaching and how to do it. Yeah, well, I think that's maybe a good opportunity to turn to the Middle Ages because I think that's kind of the focus of what we're going to be talking about. And I'm, of course, very 
motivated to do this because I feel I in all ways I feel like the Middle Ages gets a bad rep, um, mm. and I think perhaps maybe especially in preaching because of the way that the Reformation comes uh, during the end of the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, and and it's claimed that it's because of a, a lack of preaching, like you said, a more po- Protestant turn towards preaching in scriptures as opposed to sacraments. Mm. My poor Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, I get a really bad rep for this, and we saw this actually in in 2017 when the 500th anniversary of the reformation was was commemorated and you know different protestant churches commemorated in different ways but kind of the old school let's say southern baptists or the missouri synod of lutherans they were just straight up saying the word of god was just eclipsed in the middle ages the light was just put out it was under a bushel the word was not being preached and then luther started to preach the word and that's a kind of a, a relatively standard and sometimes we can be you know, sort of infected with that attitude as well. We can just presume this was the case when it was anything but the case, really. And so I think it's it's worth just any kind of acquaintance with medieval culture will actually show us that preaching and preachers were were everywhere. I mean, they could be criticized for their way of preaching. And that's really what the reformers actually did. They criticized the variety, the color, the, you know, the distracting nature of a lot of medieval preaching. And they said, we've got to return to just the pure preaching of the word of God, purely scripture based None of your extraneous stories and anecdotes and all that kind of stuff. Just drop all that pure preaching of the word of God and don't try too hard. I mean, Calvin definitely didn't try too hard um, to be entertaining in your, your preaching. And um, so just be grim if necessary and just preach the grim word of God um, and leave it at that. Whereas before, there was a much more colorful and varied preaching of the word. It's possible yeah. in some cases that the word was a little bit lost and the, the, the gospel was a little bit lost in the midst of the of the entertainment. But I definitely think the reformers overdid it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of people would be really surprised to hear that the problem with the Middle Ages was that it was too elaborate or too mm. intertextual or too learned and that it was actually a move to, to simplify. And I think, you know, I always think that the medieval period always gets that kind of rap. I always come back to, there's a great quote from Chesterton where he's talking about someone who reviewed, I think it was a history book, and he was saying that the reviewer said something ridiculous, like there was, oh, nothing of interest happened in the Middle Ages. And he was saying how I could just as easily say that nothing of interest happened in the in the Industrial Revolution, except the discovery of jellyfish and, and spinning jennies. And, you know, yeah. they are, they're, they're of no, no interest to me and and that's what he's saying is that like the only thing that you're saying is that you're not interested in the things that happen in the middle ages and i think i I have a bit of a quote from it he says take the middle ages 200 years after the norman conquest and nearly as long before the beginnings of the reformation the great cities have arisen the burghers are privileged and important labor has been organized into free and responsible trade unions the parliaments are powerful in disputing with the princes slavery has almost disappeared the great universities are open and teaching with the scheme of education that Huxley so admired. Republics as proud and civic as the republics of the pagans stand like marble statues along the Mediterranean. And all over the north, men have built such churches as men may never build again. And this, the essential part of which was done in one century rather than two, is what the critic calls, quote, little social or political advance. There is scarcely wow. an important modern institution under which he lives, from the college that trained him to the parliament that rules him, that did not make its main advance in that time. I think that really captures so much of what's important to learn about the Middle Ages. And also to to remember, because he says that that all happens in one century, and people forget that the Middle Ages is an insanely long amount of time. And certainly there is parts of it that 
are more obscured through the the sort of darkness of time, if you're going to use the, that word for dark ages, which I really hate. Mm. But, you know, like I said, in, in the beginning of the, that era, you have a more oral based society and you have buildings made out of wood and so that they don't leave this sort of strong physical evidence of their existence. But certainly, like if, you, if you're going to argue that, like maybe you can say some of it for the early Middle Ages, but by the end of the Middle Ages, you're, you know, you're coming into the 1300s, the, the 1400s. This thing starts in like, I think arguably in some places like 700s. So you're talking about a sort of insanely long amount of time. Now Now we talk about sort of like America's presidential cycles, four years as being epochs. Mm. And you think, well, mm. this is several centuries and we're, we're getting a huge amount of, of innovation. And I think what I like most about that quote is that it, it underscores how much learning and how much societal development there is at that time for the kinds of audiences who would be receiving their faith. Because I think the Catholic faith of the medieval times is seen as something really quaint for hillbilly farmers who have never seen a book in their lives. Like it's it's such a, a, a mischaracterization of the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that quotation from Chesterton is just spot on. He can just drop the mic as, as he so often could, you know. Um, and he could have added to that. And preaching has been renewed because preaching did have its it's had its ups and downs over 20 centuries christian preaching and during the middle ages it had its ups and downs too so let you if you're have a generous definition of the middle ages let's say 500 to 1500 i mean you could say that in the first um uh, let's say um 700 years of that period there were cases of some really sophisticated preaching in limited contexts um but what you have from 1200 onwards is the, the renewal of popular preaching. And popular preaching really takes off in a major, major way. And you have basically popular preaching as a network, if you like, of mass communication across Europe, everywhere in, in the vernacular and also sometimes in Latin to audiences that understood Latin. This entertaining, vivid, sensational, if you like, humorous communication that was kind of backed up by networks of, of friars like the Franciscans um, and the Dominicans and so on. And if you just read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales or even Piers Plowman, they're they're critical actually. They're they're these critical notes towards um towards these preachers and wandering preachers and so on. But they they show the extent to which preaching is just a major part of that society and um, something that, that that's just that's just part part of their world and, and quite lively. Um, and I think it's it's a it's it's important for us to to, to remember that, and um, as we think about the the the, Re the Reformation and so on, that we don't buy into the myth that preaching wasn't a major part of of medieval culture. Yeah, and I think the other the other side of that coin is the idea that the Bible and the faith was sort of wrapped up in in Latin and and Latin only, and that uh, you know people sort of presume that uh, people attending mass in the middle ages were just hearing a whole load of latin which they didn't understand and going home and saying well that's that for the week and that's also again not accurate and first of all that people were more literate than is typically given credit for like we were like chesterton's burgers and so there was like the merchants and the knights and all of these different social classes that did have to access to to literature more than people kind of give them credit for mm -hmm. um, but also that um and i think you've done a bit of research on this that while some of the homilies were recorded in Latin, the chances are they were actually preached in their vernaculars. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, recent scholars, the scholarly consensus now is that when preaching was done to, towards lay people, when the, the, the congregation was made up of lay people, it was in the vernacular. 
why on earth would you preach in a language that people don't understand? I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. And if you read the kind of the manuals of preaching, or um, if you just read generally about the history of this or that preacher, um, it's so clear that they're intent on being understood um, and being understood and, and speaking with clarity um, so that all of your listeners understand you is a real premium for, for medieval preachers. So of course they're going to preach in the vernacular, but naturally when they're going to write down what they're saying or where they're going to plan their sermon, at least in the 13th century, later on in the 15th century, they start writing in their, their own vernaculars. But in the 13th century, they're, they're writing um, in Latin. And it makes sense because that means you have something that's really shareable. So you, you write down a really, really good sermon that you preached in Latin. Let's say St. Vincent Ferrer. This is a real example. A Christmas sermon preached by the amazing Dominican preacher St. Vincent Ferrer. It's written in Latin. He preached it in, in Catalan because that was the, the language of the people um, around him. But then it's distributed through Dominican networks in collections of sermons. It's distributed elsewhere in Europe. And recently it, it's been discovered in uh, Icelandic. There it's, I think it's a 15th century manuscript in, in Reykjavik. And um, it's the same sermon preached to people in Iceland in their vernacular as well. So Latin is actually a way for, if you like, these oral events to be uploaded into uh, a cloud and then downloaded elsewhere and and becoming an oral event in a completely different vernacular. So it's a, it's Latin is a brilliant tool for this in, in this network of, of mass communication. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting way of putting it, like sort of transcribing it into our modern way of thinking of things. And that like having things in Latin was not about having it be elitist. It was actually about maintaining a level of accessibility across time. Like you mentioned Icelandic there. And it's funny, uh, my friend Chloe always refers to this text, which she she's promised me she'll do a podcast on as soon as she can find the text again. So <laughs> we'll, we'll find that. But she she said that she was really moved when we were doing our course, and, uh, which was obviously in Old English and Old Norse, which is uh, analogous to Icelandic, uh, Old Icelandic. It's essentially the, the same thing. There was a description of the mass in old Icelandic mm. and it was still recognizably the mass that she attends in you know in England today that like it can transcend both language and time and, and still say stay the same and and having a structure in Latin allows you to do that and it, of course it's tailored to the people who experience it but that there's a there's a kernel there that is replicable across a lot of different cultures and for me anyway one of my all-time favorites is, and he's actually earlier than what we're talking about. He's kind of the exception to the to the rule, but is is Alfric, and I spoke about him. I think I think I spoke about him a little bit when I did the episode on old English poetry and uh, in in the Easter time. And he he's he was just this incredible preacher who had such scope and such ambition. I think he he was attempting to write homilies for every kind of situation that you might ever find yourself in. A cycle of sermons for the whole year, as well as like a collection of saints' lives. And but then he doesn't even stop there. He does like pastoral guidance letters and various textbooks and, and all kinds of things. But the thing I like most about him is, is that he really leans into the vernacular because he's writing in Old English and speaking in Old English. And he's not, it's not just a question of saying, oh, well, this is what it is in Latin. And I will sort of clumsily word for word translate it. 
it. Like he's actually having fun with the way that the vernacular can apply to different things. So the one example that I really love is it's in one of his sermons uh, about Christmas and uh, he's quoting the shepherds. This is drawing from a blog from uh, Clark of Oxford, who I've referenced before. She's amazing. Her blog is brilliant, Mm. but she's quoted it here. So it's partly in modern day English and then the section that is particularly interesting she's left in the old English so it says let us go to Bethlehem and see that word that your word in is um, which you can translate as because the word word there can mean tidings or message or the news and and your word can just mean happen so they'd say oh let's go to Bethlehem and see the news that we've just been told has happened mm-hmm. but obviously there's a double meaning in old English that you don't have exactly the same in Latin. So you can also translate it as um, let us go and see the word which has come to be, which is obviously a beautiful way of kind of describing the birth of Christ. And I just think it's so exciting to see a preacher even as early as that was right at the millennium time, the, the 10th century, but taking such fun and delight in saying that like, oh, we can explain this in Latin, but actually if we explain it in the vernacular, I can use a double meaning that's going to get this point across so much better than if we just left it the way it was. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, uh, a skillful preacher in the, in the vernacular is obviously going to make use of all the things that their particular vernacular can do. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind, again, moving slightly later into the Middle Ages, when you have mm-hmm. the development of, of vernacular theatre and popular vernacular theatre, that this is something kind of um, alongside preaching. But again, it's the vernacular communication of, of the Christian faith. So, I mean, it didn't happen everywhere. It's not like you had these cycles of plays in, in every town possible, but in a lot of places, in, in Holland, in France, in England, and in, in, in Dublin as well, there were these plays performed. So, for example, you might, on Corpus Christi, for example, have a load of little plays performed, acting out all of salvation history, from creation of the world to the judgment of the world, all of it in a language that you can understand. Um, and I'm thinking of an example of uh, in the end town plays, this 15th century plays, we're not sure exactly where they were performed, but Our Lady and Elizabeth, when they have a little play, Mary sings the Magnificat in Latin, and Elizabeth translates each stanza into English. And, and then they say at the end, oh, and by the way, this should be sung every evening at Vespers in every church. And so it's just a really, really, it just shows that, that this interest in the medieval church, not everywhere and at all times, but very often in popular communication of the faith that was preserved in in Latin texts. Absolutely. And that the compilations of of homilies and homiletic tales kind of also, first of all, serves those kind of passion plays, but also goes into sort of secular art and and literature at the time. And, you know, I think is it the Gesta Romanorum, which is referenced Mm. or drawn on from like, I think it's Chaucer, Gower, Hocklave and like all of the Elizabethan dramatists that they even when they're not talking about religion specifically that they're drawing from these homilies because they're sort of such currency at the time in terms of stories. Absolutely and so you, you have a kind of a, a two-way sort of a thing you have collections of stories that don't necessarily have much to do explicitly with the Christian faith so stories about Alexander the Great or about Charlemagne or stories about the Crusades and so on that work their way into homilies and homiletic collections just because they're really good stories. So stories about kings and great deeds, they turn up constantly as anecdotes in sermons. And then you kind of have, going back the other way, from the homiletic world 
into the world of secular literature, if you like. I mean, the secular religious distinction doesn't really hold up here. But Chaucer, for example, various tales, they're really like little sermons. They're so similar in style. So the pardoner's tale in Chaucer, um, it's just it's really, really similar in style to sermons that would have been delivered at the same time. So you have a lot of over and back between preaching and literature. Although you could argue that the distinction really is that good preaching, as you mentioned, is not art for art's sake. Good literature is art for art's sake. Well, that's arguable, I suppose. But um, good preaching is art, something skillfully produced and beautifully produced that should be useful. And if it's not useful, if it doesn't edify, if it doesn't build up uh, the listeners, then it's a, a wasted effort, according to the perspective of faith, at least. And I think where some people might miss this is something that you hinted at earlier, which was that whereas now we can see sermons as being very formal and very serious things, but back in the medieval times, they were a lot more entertaining um, and maybe even a little too much entertainment. But the, the reason why you can have this kind of exchange going back and forth is because it wasn't necessarily really boring to sit through a sermon. I think of to, to jump forward a couple of centuries, but I, it always just reminds me of, you know, I think it's in Pride and Prejudice when they pull out four dice's sermons for their evening's entertainment and all of the girls are sort of rolling their eyes and going, oh no, four dice's sermons yeah. for, for, for the evening. And I think as Mr. Collins is like, I cannot understand why something with so much good instruction would be so badly received. But yeah. I mean, the, the medievals, they knew that it was important to, to entertain. And I think you and you've some really great examples of that. Yeah, well, and, and I think in that sense, all of modern preaching, if you like, even Catholic preaching in, in English, at least, has been influenced by the, the, the grimness of kind of sola scriptura preaching, which excludes all of these not that scripture can't be entertaining in itself in its own way but that deliberately excludes anything that might raise a smile we've all been affected by that in some way and i like the idea that modern preaching can somehow reconnect with medieval preaching that actually placed the premium on um, on humor and kind of vividness and vivid stories and so i just think of one example of a sermon that includes a story about uh, a man who converts he had had a mistress and he leaves behind the mistress, mistress dies, and he enters um, a monastery, but he has the corpse of his mistress in his room with him as a constant reminder, as her corpse rots there in his room, a constant reminder of the impermanence of worldly glory and so on. Um, you also have collections of um, stories like the Fasciculus Morum. It's a, a 14th century English Franciscan collection of stories. And there's just one that, that, that comes to mind there, stories that could be inserted into a sermon to spice it up. And it's about a bishop who is giving out stink to one of his priests because he's heard that this priest has held a requiem mass for the priest's donkey when the donkey died. And the bishop says, you can't be doing this. Don't be, don't be daft. And the, the priest says to the bishop, did you not hear how much this donkey left you in his will? And the bishop said, requiescat in pante. Um, so these stories that are often really irreverent. So you kind of think, my gosh, how, how would a preacher get something edifying out of that? It would, it would just kind of raise a smile, maybe wake people up. That was really the value of jokes. Um, just to wake people up and then to kind of open them up again to a slightly more edifying gospel message. But also another thing that, that preachers would use, they would use um, poetry, sometimes love poetry, nature poetry, or explicitly religious poetry. And they would weave little jingles, hymns, poems into their sermons. And some of the best loved uh, Christmas carols that are sung and, you know, carols from kings and all this kind of stuff now, 
some of those um, best loved medieval carols actually survive in um, manuscripts of sermons. Um, and so definitely entertainment, colour um, and humour were, were really important in this context. I often think about there's a couple of strange old English ones that I've come across of like allegory poems called like there's one called the whale where it's just essentially Satan is a whale and he, here are the reasons why um, and they're not particularly like well produced there's I think the other one is the panther where Jesus is a panther because panthers have nice breath and Jesus yeah. has a nice breath um, <laughs> yeah. the, panther, the panther is a preacher then as well and it's it's his the preaching of Jesus that's sweet and all the animals come to, to sniff his breath. And you see this in bestiaries, but the dragon runs away. The dragon is the only one who doesn't like the breath of the panther. And so that represents that, you know, the devil doesn't like preaching. So I, that's a great example as well. I did a lot of studying on bestiaries because I kind of focused a lot on monsters and conceptions of monsters when I was doing my degree. So often these bestiaries occur in the context of preaching manuscripts, including one of the most famous ones. It's in a Dominican preaching manuscript, um, and you have a bestiary right in the middle, clearly intended to spice up sermons, and it has pictures. So you can imagine the preacher potentially showing pictures to his listeners at the same time. I mean, I love preaching about animals and all that kind of stuff and, and using animal examples. It hasn't had much effect on, on my listeners so far, I think, but, um, but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. I think you were trying to sell me once on the the 300 preachable stories about bees. <laughs> yeah, well, that is, that's one of my favorite. So that's a Dominican, early Dominican, Thomas of Contempre, and he collects, it's called the Bonum Universale de Apibus, the, the universal good of bees, um, and just 300 preachable stories about the society of bees, how they organize themselves, they, their, their good morals, and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and actually I came across in an Irish manuscript, uh, a I, I think this is a preaching manuscript, and I argued it at a, at a conference of Irish medievalists, and they were fairly convinced. A story about um, a, a, a priest who is bringing communion to somebody, and he drops the host on the way, and some bees fly along and pick up this host, bring it back to their um, their hive, and for about a year, they have the host in their hive, and they're worshipping the Lord in the Eucharist. They actually build a little cathedral out of wax. They build an altar. They build little candles. Perfect. Beeswax candles. That's exactly what you need. Um, and then finally, somehow the priest comes back, finds the hive, finds the bees adoring the host um, and, and takes the host. I actually, I mean, clearly miracles happen, obviously, but I don't think that particularly happened. That sounds like an invented story. But I was telling this story um, during a talk and I could just see a few people in the front row were really like they're taking notes on this story and they're about to tell their friends. Father Connor says that a bee, you know, picked up the host and started adoring it. So you have to be careful. And, and to what extent people thought these stories, if they turn up in sermons, were necessarily true or whether they were like wink, wink, nod, nod. That story isn't true, but it helps us understand the gospel. Um, but yeah, in any case, um, stories about about bees were often um, turned up in sermons and ants, ants were like really model insects as well. The Bible itself in Ecclesiastes, it says, you lazy man, look to the ant. Look at what he does. And there's a long passage um, about the virtues of the ant. So there's biblical a biblical basis for all of this, I think. Um, but with these, these bestiaries, um, collections of stories about animals, they're part of a whole kind of library that would have been there in the houses um, of preaching communities that they would have drawn on in all of their sermons. And that includes, you know, collections of model sermons, collections of anecdotes, collections of stories about, about animals, um, but also uh, 
diagrams that could be used to, to, to learn off um, sermon collections of lists, collections of proverbs, travel literature. That's something that I'm really fascinated by, and it's not much discussed, but friars loved travel literature. Dominicans cooperated with Marco Polo in editing his travel writings and in distributing them. And there's a 15th century Irish translation of Marco Polo that was translated in a Franciscan friary in Cork. And the one manuscript that we have from the Limerick Dominicans, we only have one surviving medieval manuscript from an Irish mendicant community, and it includes travels in Mongolia. That's one of the things that they were interested in. So all of these kinds of works, and of course, Lives of the Saints, like the Golden Legend, that was a collection aimed at supporting preachers. All of these books um, were aimed to, to, to help produce lively, interesting, entertaining, edifying sermons. Yeah, and I think it really speaks to the the richness of the medieval mind at the time that travel literature, like you said, like in Cork in, in the medieval yeah. time that they were reading about Mongolia. Like, I think that really surprises people. Um, and even the idea of having the imagination of being sort of interested in imagining the the lives of animals or the the idea that they could have sort of interior lives the way that humans have interior lives mm. that like there's this really kind of rich textualism i think you even mentioned to me that there's some evidence of um king lear being referenced in homilies which again is just an example of you know like bishop baron may do it now where he sort of pre preaches on whatever big movie has come out this year that like all of this has a place and has a tradition within the the catholic teaching that we can take all kinds of inspiration from all around the world and that there's a real kind of confidence in saying these stories we're going to teach you about Christ through these stories even if it doesn't seem obvious how we're going to do that exactly I mean um yeah so the, a really clever use of of, of literature and um, of secular sources so one surprising source that turns up in a lot of sermons is Seneca who was I mean we know him as a pagan philosopher now in the middle ages there was a kind of a rumor that he'd been converted by St. Paul. And so there was kind of some idea that he was more or less Christian. But in any case, he's, he's not explicitly Christian, but he's quoted often in, in sermons, including when I was studying this Irish language manuscript, I identified the source of um, uh, one of these quotations from Seneca. And it was just so exciting to say, you know, this is from letter 76 to, to Lucilius. And here it is in an Irish medieval manuscript. It was so exciting. But that King Lear story, so it, it turns up in a sermon preached by a canon regular in England, I think in the 15th century. So King Lear obviously predates Shakespeare as a, as a story. And in it, it talks about the three daughters of Lear um, and two who don't really love him, but say they love him. And the preacher says, that's like the flesh and the world. They're going to tell you as a human that they love you, um, but they don't really love you. And their love is not going to bear much fruit. It's not going to last long. But the youngest daughter, Cordelia, she really loves you. And she's like Christ. Christ loves you for yourself. That's the phrase that's used. Christ loves you for yourself. And that's a love that lasts, a sincere love. So Christ as Cordelia. It's a beautiful example um, of the kind of parallels that the preachers would delight in. And actually, in the same sermon later on, there's a maybe more humorous, more boisterous sort of a, an anecdote about the devil's uh, daughters. Um, so it just says the devil had all these daughters, pride and um, simony and sacrilege and dishonesty and lust. And so the devil has to marry all of these daughters off to uh, grooms. Um, and so pride, he marries pride to noblemen. Um, sacrilege he marries to farmers I don't get that I'm not sure why farmers are particularly sacrilegious but he marries sacrilege to farmers simony obviously to 
the clergy, dishonesty to lawyers, naturally enough, and he can't find a daughter for lust. So in the end, he marries lust to the entire human race. And <laughs> you can imagine people laughing at that point. Um, and it's just kind of saying every every group in society has their own their own inherent um, weaknesses. Um, and just to be aware of that, that we're all we're all in this thing called sin together. But it's in the context of a sermon, which is an Easter sermon about the resurrection of Jesus. And so there's there's a hopeful message there as well. That reminds me, I was reading one of the articles by Alan J. Fletcher. He's um, mm. a scholar in this area. And at the start of the article, Fletcher sort of goes into great detail of how specific that medieval preachers were about the mechanics and details of preaching in that they would literally indicate how you were supposed to say certain words and like vocally simulating as appropriate wonder, irony and derision or impatience and indignation. Um, and that even going into like the different body language that you can use and, you know, that there's this real sense of that there's a real kind of scholarship around this and that it was seen as a real art. And I think you you, you mentioned the, the art, arts perkendi that that this was a real skill that was so important to develop because of its primacy and of its importance. And I think maybe that brings us towards a particular favorite of yours, Humbert. Yeah, Humbert of, I mean, in the order, we tend to call him Humbert of Romans, but it's Humbert of Romans in uh, in the southeast of, of France. Um, and one of his interesting texts that we'll be discussing a bit is the, the treatise on, on preaching. And in many ways, it's like those texts that you just mentioned, um, which are kind of how-to books on, on, on preaching, tips and tricks and so on. But it's a little bit different because it really emphasizes the psychology of the preacher, the motives of the preacher, and the spirituality of the preacher. And it presumes that the preacher is a traveling preacher. So it's really, I mean, as a Dominican, I'm reading this thinking he's really writing for, for Dominican friars um, because we're not just you know, priests who happen to preach, we are predicatories, we're preachers, that's, that's who we are. And there's a great, when the Pope was confirming the, the order of preachers in 1216, um, the actual original manuscript still survives. And originally, the bull said, uh, it used the, 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 the phrase predicantium, so um, the order of, of people who preach, the order of people who preach. And that was actually scratched out by the Dominicans before it was kind of resubmitted to the Pope. And it said predicatorum, the order of preachers. In other words, it's who we are. And Humbert really reflects that um, in his discussion of preaching. It's like be, being a preacher, the, the vocation of, of being a preacher, the grace of, of preaching. And so he, Humbert was, he's the fifth master of the order. So um, the order of Dominicans was, the order of preachers was founded in 1216 by St. Dominic, not, not surprisingly. And really it's a movement of full-time popular preachers. We're kind of associated with the universities. People think of Thomas Aquinas, Albert the Great, but popular preaching is the bread and butter of what Dominicans were about. So we arrived in Ireland, people might be interested to know, in 1224. This priory that I'm in right now, not the actual building, but the community that I'm in, and was founded then. So we have a big anniversary coming up in a few years' time. And in that same year, Humbert joined the order. He was one of many students at the University of Paris, who were attracted to this new order of popular preachers. So he, he joins the order and very quickly he rises to, to leadership, first in Italy, then in France, and then he's elected master of the order in Budapest um, in 1254. And then he, for nine years, he's master and he writes loads of really helpful books that kind of organize and tidy up 
the order. They tidy up the, the liturgy, producing what's known as the Dominican Rite. He clarified kind of roles of responsibility in the order. He wrote rules, commentaries on our way of life. And then he wrote this book on the task of preaching. As well as that, it's worth knowing that he wrote um, collections of sermons and collections of anecdotes or exempla that could be used in sermons. Um, and I was just having a look through some of these template sermons that he kind of distributed throughout the order. And some of them are great. I mean, there's one on kind of a template on a sermon that could be preached to women generally. The template of a sermon at a tournament, a jousting tournament, which is just so cool. And he says at the start of this model sermon, he says, a, a tournament is a really good place to go, even though they're illegal. He says they're illegal. They're not meant to be happening. But it's a really good place to go because there's lots of sinners there. There's lots of people who are far from Christ. And so that's where we need to be. But he says, only preach if you're likely to get a hearing. If people just put their fingers in their ears, stop preaching. And I was kind of thinking, this is like you know, going to a music festival or something in Ireland today and, and saying, these are the people who need to hear the gospel. Let's do our best. And if they're not interested, we'll, we'll move on. So in any case, that was who he was, really interested in, in mission to foreign countries as well. And he died in, in 1277. So that's, that's who Humbert was. Yeah, and you you linked me his treatise on preaching when we, we started discussing this podcast. And I was kind of expecting it to be kind of dry and then I started mm. reading it. And it was actually really fascinating. And like you said, very astute in the way that it analyzes people's psychologies and, and the sort of the good reasons people have for wanting to preach and also the bad reasons for both wanting to preach and not wanting to preach, like yeah. the, the self-importance uh, aspect of it or the self-aggrandizement, but also the, the false humility or the laziness or the cowardice that would lead you to not preach, that it was very astute in, in terms of its assessment of people's motives. Absolutely. I mean, I, we read it in, um, uh, in the refectory here. So sometimes we have a reading during lunch um, and I picked this book to read. Like you, I expected it to be fairly dry. Um, but as I was reading, I mean, after every meal, people were saying, gosh, that I mean, it's so relevant to our lives today. And we were able to say, like, when he's talking about a particular type of person, we're kind of looking around and saying, oh, yeah, that's brother so-and-so. And this is brother so-and-so. <laughs> and that's me. Like, I mean, I remember reading out one bit. Uh, I won't say which, but I was just thinking that's exactly my fault as a preacher. You know, he's spot on. So he's, he's really astute. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And so lots of lots of what he identified as kind of flaws or weaknesses or strengths in, in preachers and preaching. They're 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 still relevant today. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love the way that he he lays out why preaching is important. And we've touched on this a little bit before, but he does he does such a great job of, of explaining how the, the church is, is built up of, of preaching. And in some ways it feels very counterintuitive. And I don't think as a Catholic I would ever now want to sort of diminish the role of the sacraments. And particularly, yeah. you know, we're still in lockdown in some ways. And so many of us have been kind of denied access to the sacraments that, it, you know, you do really rejoice in receiving them. But he does point out how in Christ's own presence on earth, that preaching was the thing that took primacy and that we have such an opportunity to reach people through preaching. Yeah. And, and actually reading some of this, some of us questioned it afterwards. And we were just kind of saying, gosh, I mean, he's really bigging up preaching in, in the life of the church almost to the extent of kind of diminishing everything else. But I mean, in the context, he's trying to really carve out a space for what Dominicans are about in the life of the church. And again, remember, this is at a time of renewal of preaching when it had previously been, you know, not as prominent in the life of the church, it's fair to say. Um, so 
one of the things he says is he compares preaching to all the other kinds of things um, that are done in the church. So like works of corporal mercy or the study of the Bible, the celebration of the Eucharist, hearing confessions, and then the preaching of the, the, the singing of the divine office. And he's partly critiquing here kind of the monks of Cluny, if you like. So the monks of Cluny are kind of saying, you know, what we're all about is just like offering this perfect praise to God um, in the divine office and in many masses a day. And Humbert is part of a kind of a slightly counter movement to corrective of that, because what he says is, OK, studying scripture is important, he says, but the aim of this study should be the spreading of the doctrine of scripture, the spreading of of the true faith. Here in Confessions, he says that's that's really important and he does think it's really important, but he says it's one on one, whereas preaching gives you contact with a large number of people. Sacraments, he says, sacraments are really important. It kind of brings us back to what we were saying earlier, but they only bear fruit if the recipients of the sacraments have living faith. And that faith is provoked or, or brought about um, through preaching. And then singing the divine office, singing the praise of God, it's really important, he says, but the laity don't understand the word sung. And this again shows the priority of the vernacular in preaching. He says, when you're singing the Psalms in Latin, the laity don't know what you're saying but they do understand what the preacher says. So again, he just presumes, it's just taken for granted that the preacher is preaching in, in the vernacular. And then he gives the example of Christ. He says, Christ spent, you know, 33 years on earth. He only celebrated mass once. This is what made people kind of a little bit uncomfortable because we love the mass um, and we really value the sacrifice of, of the mass. But Humbert is saying he celebrated mass once. He didn't hear a confession once. You could argue, you know, okay, he forgave people's sins quite a bit. And then he says, and he didn't, he never said the divine office. <laughs> I mean, okay, he probably prayed the Psalms, but um, Humbert is kind of exaggerating the case a little bit. But he says, he prayed and he preached. And when he began to preach, he spent more time preaching than in prayer. So it's really this idea that Jesus was a wandering preacher. And for Dominicans and Franciscans, this is key. There's a kind of a little phrase they use. They say, I do not see in the Gospels that Jesus was a white monk, a Cistercian, or a black monk, a Benedictine. I see that he was a wandering preacher. And so he is the foundation of what these friars are trying to do. I love when he goes into all of the different biblical images for preachers that he, I think that's kind of my favorite parts of the, the treaties mm. is where he makes these, so many great analogies that really make it come alive, but he kind of pulls out some of the images of preachers as well as being like the angels or like the stars. And then he goes down, I think he sort of goes down through like eagles and, and roosters and all of mm. these kind of great examples. So he's like the, the rooster crowing at the dawn, who gives who gives the rooster wisdom and, and talking about how that is like the preacher who was given wisdom by God. Mm. Um, it's such a, a fun section to kind of see all of these different, it's almost like a kaleidoscope where you keep changing it and seeing seeing preachers from all of these different angles until you get a more full view of it. Yeah, and, and I think this is, you're, you're, you're kind of in the atmosphere of medieval preaching here because maybe we would prefer with our taste that he would have picked one image or maybe a few images, but he just piles them up. He just gives a list of about 10 or 15. And it's that kind of ornate over the top um, style. I mean, there's some that are, that are really cool. The reason he says preachers are like eagles, kind of like eagles slash vultures. And um, it's because they are attracted to carcasses and preachers are attracted to sinners. They're meant to go where people are dead in sin and through the preaching of the word, bring about a resurrection. That's just fantastic. And then dogs, 
So this is even before the, the Dominicans are known as the dogs of the Lord. And there's this dream that St. Dominic's mother had about a dog with a torch in its mouth. That's why our churches are full of representations of dogs. But the image of, of preachers as dogs is actually older than us. And Humbert says preachers are like dogs because they run around everywhere devouring souls and not killing them, but kind of like grabbing them and then gathering them into the church like kind of sheepdogs, if you like. So those images are just really, really beautiful. Some stranger ones in there that maybe we won't go into, but I think um, they're, 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 they're really a beautiful biblical. Everything in that is based on, on scripture. And I think, again, we might not expect and the Middle Ages to be, if we buy into the Protestant critique, we might not expect the Middle Ages to be so biblical, but he's just constantly drawing on really obscure parts of the scriptures, you know, Ezra and, um, and Nehemiah and Judith and, and whatever else. Absolutely. And I think there is a, a reference that also kind of ties into another element of what he's saying, where he's talking about how you need to cater, literally cater what you're saying mm. for the different audiences. And then he, he quotes... Gregory the Great, who's then quoting Gregory of Nazianzen. But what profits some harms others as herbs which nourish certain animals cause others to perish. A soft whistling which calms a horse excites a dog and a bread which fortifies a mature man would cause the death of a little child. I love that the the soft whistling which calms a horse would excite a dog. It's just such a, a brilliant way of saying you need to know the kinds of people who are who are in front of you. You need to have kind of an emotional intelligence to figure out what kinds of people you're you're preaching to. It's about producing something in the souls of the people who are there sitting in front of you. Yeah, and I think you know it's psychological and also emotional. Like I, I think it's also quoting Saint Gregory, but he says, "Calm those who are overly active without condoning the torpor of the inactive. Patience to the hot-headed without encouraging the carelessness of men already thoughtless and lax." And then at the end, he says, which I think is wonderful he says praise the perfect without discouraging the less perfect and encourage the latter to advance in virtue and not be satisfied with their present imperfect state i think of this when i'm when i whenever i mention the life of a saint or if i'm preaching on a particular saint's day i'm always aware of that the risk of of presenting something that's so intimidating that it actually turns people off from seeking the lord and seeking to live a good life um, and so you've, I, th- I feel it's important always to include something that shows the saint's weakness, just so as not to completely intimidate people. Um, and Humbert mm-hmm. really, really has that awareness too. But I would love to see, as you say, I would love to see priests um, have more of the attitude of, let's say, Protestant churches and to say the sermon is super, super important. These people need nourishment. They need encouragement. They need the truth. They need teaching. They need explanation. And they, they need to be edified. And I, I would love to see that. I don't think it's very prominent um, in the life of the church in Ireland. I mean, what amazed me during the lockdown was that in some online masses that there was no sermon preached, um, which really astonishes me when you're aware that there are people who are removed from the sacraments. They're desperately in need of the word of God because they're they're anxious, they're stressed, they're upset, they're uncertain, they're doubting, and not to preach the word to those people. I just have no no understanding of of, um, of how somebody could come to that decision. I understand priests are under a lot of pressure, but just the priority of the word of God, which is so emphasized in, in the Second Vatican Council, it just doesn't seem to have really taken hold here. And very often what we find in sermons in, in Irish parish churches is that they're you know, often a vaguely moralistic 
commentary on contemporary life. I think that's fair. I mean, is that is that unfair, Rachel? What do you think? I totally agree. There's also a part of me that says that when we focus so much on specific news events, it's kind of like, well, okay, so the the pandemic was global, so we were all going through it. But, you know, then you begin to feel like, well, this thing is happening here and we're not talking about it or this thing is happening Mm. here. And I think we can talk about issues um, and not make them all about the news. And I think talking about issues that are troubling people is really important, but recapping the news is maybe less <laughs> important. Or also the, you know, the, the priest's opinion on, on, on the news. I mean, Humbert has zero interest in the opinion of, of the preacher. It just doesn't come into it. And, and so in that sense, the idea of a certain timelessness in preaching, that when somebody comes to the Eucharist or to another kind of a, a preaching event, the, they should be plugging into something that transcends whatever's going on in the world. And yes, absolutely speaks to the situation in, in the world today, but but transcends it most definitely. And so that people realize there is something something fixed, something stable in the midst of all of this flux. And it's this truth um, that I can cling to and and that that is my 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 haven. You know, I think that's that's really, really important in preaching. When I was reading Humbert, what he says about confession in confession, you reach one person. And in preaching, you reach many people. I was just thinking, what would he, I mean, he would love the internet. I mean, <laughs> the way in which you can potentially reach a wide range of people who would never darken the door of your church. Mm-hmm. Until recently, I wasn't convinced really of the value of online preaching. And now, lockdown, I'm utterly convinced that it should be a priority for the church. And it's actually something that Humbert's successor, the current master of the order, he wrote a letter at the start of lockdown saying to the Dominicans, basically kind of a, a call to arms, a call to to move our preaching online. And it was so inspiring to see men, our, our brothers in the province, in their 70s and 80s, um, getting involved in online preaching. It was really, really beautiful to see because it, it does give us you know, access to people who, who, who maybe wouldn't necessarily come to our churches. And I think we have to be, especially in a secularized world, where religious practice is in, in decline, especially among young people, um, I think it really is where it's at. If we're interested, it's like go- going to the tournament for Humbert, you know. You're saying, look, at, these are the people who are not coming to the sacraments. They're the place, they're the people we need to be speaking to first and foremost. Absolutely. And I think that's a great place to to wrap up. This has been such a fun conversation, just like what we were, were talking about. And I guess the only thing I have left to ask you is, what have you been enjoying at the moment? Well, um, I've been enjoying lots of different things, reading in all kinds of different directions, apart from what I should be reading. But one thing that I've, I've really enjoyed recently is a poem from the 14th century uh, translated by Tolkien. And it's Middle English, but it's translated by Tolkien into Modern English called Pearl. And it's a fairly long poem, but just the most beautiful poem about, about grief, suffering, the consolation of the truth of our faith. Um, so it's about a man who, um, whose daughter has died and he goes to her tomb and he leans on her tomb and finds himself in paradise or near paradise and his daughter's on the far side of a river. She explains to him everything that's going on. She consoles him, but he's still heartbroken and, and he tries to swim across to her. When he jumps into the water, he ends up back alone. This is really emphasized. He's alone in his grief. And what does he do then at the very end of the poem? He goes to Mass. And it's just one of these cases in which as believing Catholics today, we can find something that just chimes, that resonates with us um, in medieval culture that is that is just, you know, rich, beautiful, true, and um and has, has this wonderful integrity 
Um, so that's that's what I'm enjoying. I love that poem and I, I love Tolkien and I think he does such a, a great job of um, translating it. I mean, like I think people can think that his translations of these things are just gimmicks because he's famous for other reasons, but that um, obviously he was sort of a professor before he was ever an author. So that he was highly esteemed in his own field and that these translations are really worthwhile. I love his translation of Beowulf as well. It's really thoughtful. I guess for the thing that I've been enjoying at the moment, I was just trying to think. I think I'm going to say that I've been listening to the audiobook of Farewell, My Lovely by Raymond Chandler. I haven't finished it yet, so maybe I won't specifically talk about that one, but it was reminding me how much I enjoyed The Big Sleep, which is the first one of his books. Obviously, they're very famous, noir, detectives. The audiobook is excellent. The reader is Ray Porter, and he just sounds everything like you would expect noir detective narrator to sound like. Um, But the thing that I kind of wanted to say is that how, again, there's a lot more richness in some of these things than people maybe give them credit for. Um, First of all, that they're a lot funnier than I'm always coming back to this thing. I worked for a book website for a while and I was allowed to write articles on lots of different literary topics. And the thing that I kept coming back to was trying to convince people that famous novels that they've heard of are worth reading because they are both entertaining and funny and beautiful and not because they're really serious and lofty and you know, self-important. But one of the articles I actually wrote for that website, which was making me think of it, is is that certainly in The Big Sleep and, and kind of going forward, the books are really, really influenced by Arthurian myth and deliberately so and overtly so and so much so the the detective Philip Marlowe was originally going to be Philip Mallory as in Thomas Mallory who wrote the Mm. Arthurian legends and even at the very beginning of the big sleep he comes to a house where there's a really gaudy stained glass window of a knight saving a, a damsel and it sort of sets up this whole thing that this is knights who are working in a really fallen, broken world and you know Philip Marlowe is going to try and be the good knight in all of this And I just think it's really interesting to see the way that people take um, literary influences that you wouldn't expect and translate them into very different settings. So that's what I'm going to recommend. That sounds great. I'd I'd, I'd love to read that. And and it just kind of made me wonder about sort of medievalism in in literature and in culture. You know, there was this kind of maybe in the 19th century, um, this valuing of of the medieval. And just maybe the, the, the difference when, you know, in terms of our faith, when we turn to things that are medieval, it's not so much kind of a matter of restoring uh, a lost age, but what we find in the Middle Ages, when we find um, good Christians doing good Christian things in the Middle Ages, uh, we find brothers and sisters. And, and, and I think for me, um, that's why I love the Middle Ages. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Father Connor. And hopefully we'll have you back on again soon. We've had to record this online, but I'm hoping in the coming weeks and months, maybe it might be possible to start doing these in person again. And it's always wonderful to talk to you. And of course, for all of our listeners, thank you so much for listening and, you know, subscribe and share and get in touch. I've had a few um, emails over the summer from people just getting in touch and telling me what they're reading and things like that, which I genuinely love getting. So do get in touch and uh, I'll be talking to you again in another two weeks. Thanks for listening. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. 
Thank you and God bless. Thank you.